Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet, a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they had found, both good and bad, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. The same day, some Sadducees came to him, saying, There is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies childless, his brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died childless, leaving the widow to his brother. The second did the same, so also the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, then, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all of them had married her. Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is God, not of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astounded at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question, What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Hey, good morning. Uh, I'd like to start by praying, if you wouldn't mind. God, thanks. Um, as we just kind of enjoy summer in Montana and life moves so fast and distractions are myriad, just thanks for uh, people who are here. And uh, my prayer would be that this, this hour, not just this message, but the music that already happened and the communion to follow, the conversation before and after, uh, the time for kids and narrate kids, uh, that, that it's an hour well spent. And so just trust in what it is you might do with these next few moments. We love you. Amen. So how many of you are a fan of horror, horror movies? Anybody? I already see people shaking their head. No, I'm with you. I'm like, life is hard enough. Why do you wait? Why, like, why would you do that to yourself? But, so some of you, the rest of you, are you ambivalent? Or how many of you are like, nope, never, not doing it? Never. Yeah. Never, I, never, never, never. I'm in the same never, never, never. And it's especially because of this stupid movie Jaws. Because yeah. I watched it at my friend's house when I was a little kid. And I still can't get into a hot tub without hearing that silly song. You know what I'm talking about? The then Anybody? Like even a creek kind of freaks you out? I, I want to start there because I, I think, and, and I realize that listening to someone read, sometimes you only catch parts of it, but if you, if you were to read Matthew 22 closely, and if you're new with us this morning, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew for over a year. We're now entering into the latter part of it. We'll wrap up in August. But if you read Matthew 22 closely, it's kind of scary. Uh, it, to, to our modern sensibilities, it's wildly offensive, if not foreign. It's the type of stuff that would be easily avoided were it not for a series where we're just committed to reading one word, one sentence, one story at a time. It's a little freaky. Uh, but I don't think it has to be. Uh, and and the, question, the, the questions that I think this chapter beg us to consider are something like, to what extent, if any, are you living as though uh, you're loved and accountable. I mean, we, we tend to live in a time and a culture, and I'm grateful for that, where the emphasis is all to the extent that you're considering God and wrestling with God or believing in God, especially if narrates home for you, that the emphasis tends to be around a God who loves and accepts and values, who's unconditional in his love, and I, for one, think all those things are true. I wonder if the role of Matthew 22, especially if you come at God from this bias, isn't to also create conversation around the accountability piece, around the like what you do with this life matters piece, around this piece that, that God isn't just loving and caring and considerate and kind and accepting and all those things, but that God does have standards, uh, that there is moral truth, though probably talking about the extent to which we can know it is another conversation, that there is accountability, that, that a person can use their life well and they can waste it. And I know that's kind of heavy, but I also wonder if this doesn't have the potential to be a really empowering section of scripture. Because sometimes having some options taken away and things just getting simpler actually makes for a better life. Like, I was thinking, I don't know if this parallel works, but Several years ago, I decided that Steve Jobs was a genius, not just because of his computer technology, but because of his wardrobe. Like just the realization of like he owns several things of the same pair of pants and several things of the same shirt. He kind of knows what he looks good in and what he's comfortable in. And so why do I need to pretend that all these other clothes actually I like? I'm just going to get a whole bunch of the same thing. I actually made that transition several years ago, and it's awesome. I haven't done it on Sunday yet, though I'm getting closer. But I can order the same jeans, the same blue t-shirts, and just... There's this freedom to like, I don't spend all this time figuring out what I'm gonna wear in the morning, I love it. It 
What, what if this is kind of like that, though? Because life has so many options, especially for those of us living in the culture and the time that we do. So many things to give our resources to, so many things to give our time to, so many people to please, so many people to impress. What if a conversation about accountability can actually be a really liberating, kind of freeing conversation? Reminds me a little of Dallas Willard, some of my my favorite quotes here coming up is, go ahead to that next slide, Dallas Willard, he said it this way, what if what you get from this life is who you become? And what if what God gets from your life is who you become? It's a conversation connected to maybe circumstances aren't as important as we think, that that really what's happening in us is characters being formed and it matters. Or, Or there's a song by Sleeping At Last, it's again one of my favorites, when my friend Greg died, it was just, it's when I think I discovered it and there's this music video out from it and it's a brilliant song about death and grief. Uh, Ryan O'Neill, the, the artist, is an incredible writer and the song opens this way, next slide. He says, death is promised to the bee whose sting protects the colony. Is its life worth nothing more than honey for the queen? So it's a, it's a song about the absurdity of life and death but then in there is this line, death puts an unwanted emphasis on how we should have lived, which is itself a question, isn't it? And I'm totally willing to just go like, you just have to sit with this question. Is is that even a true idea? Is there a right and a wrong? Is there a life well lived and a life wasted? I was sitting with a friend recently who <clears throat> had a family member, I gather some probably somewhere in the 50s or 60s range, who had died pretty unexpectedly and there was some grief around that, and in particular, one of my friend's family members was struggling, and I think I've sat in these situations enough to to at least have some sense of what was going on, and so I just took a chance and I named it, and I said, let me guess, maybe part of what's going on here is that the person that you're grieving was kind of a, you know what? I didn't say you know what there, but I'm not gonna say that here. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but what we've walked through just for a few moments was, is there a tension between loved, valued, like a a family member, a son, an uncle, a brother, whatever, and some major hurts committed that were never mopped up, never circled back to? And what if what you're feeling right now is this really hard reminder that like we are accountable, that you can waste a life, and then the little bit of experience I've had with this, what I've learned is sometimes to move forward from this point, you just kind of have to name it. That there's a way of saying loved, valued, a child of God, and accountable. And sure, we don't know ultimately how, how that accountability was handled by God, but, but there's someone you're supposed to be. There's something you're, th- th- there's, there's a, a way of being in the world that you're supposed to live into. Andy Stanley said it this way in his famous intro to a Catalyst podcast. He, he said, life is a stewardship. It's temporary and you're accountable. So I get this is heavy and it's possible that, th- that your head's not even in this space right now and if that's the case, I'm sorry, but I just wonder if Matthew 22 begs us to sit with this just for a few moments. Not in a way that has to be scary, but actually in a way that can help you further clarify the answers to certain questions that you're facing of like, do I do this or that or do I try to press this person or that person? Maybe there's a simplifying. So let's look back at verse 11 again just to, to be clear of what we're dealing with. When the king came in to see the guests, He noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. 
I wonder, isn't that right there in those two verses, uh, the both and of loved and accountable? Because first of all, he's been invited, but he's not wearing the wedding robe. And to that uh, seems really arbitrary, and that's fair. Culturally, what's going on here is, in in the Jewish culture, uh, the the belief was that when the Messiah came, there would be a wedding, there would be a party. There'd be a wedding banquet. And therefore, everybody who's his would be invited to this banquet. So Jesus already turned the world upside down by saying everyone's invited. But then there's this, this other part of it. I mean, he does say to him, friend, this, this term of affection and acceptance and love and kindness. The only other time the author Matthew uses this word is, is later in the gospel when he's referring to Judas. Some think that maybe what's going on here is Matthew's internal commentary on Judas is found in these these, these statements of friend, because remember when Judas shows up to, to do this heinous betrayal, Jesus just looks at him and says, friend. So there's the loved and accepted, but then he says, like, why aren't you wearing the wedding clothes? Like, what's going on? And it raises questions about, like, can you just drift into faith, faithfulness? Is, is, is easy Christianity really a thing? Like, how do we weigh the grace of acceptance with the responsibility of accountability? And he keeps going in case, I mean, that would be hard if he ended there, but then it gets even more difficult. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. What if the threat of total loss is real? Like what if in the grand scheme of things it's possible to waste a life? Which is to say to waste an energy, to to waste God's divine breath. And what if that's really uncomfortable? It's like a horror film. But to the extent that it's true, it's also really important. I think another way to explore this is this idea of the buffered self. Charles Taylor has written this book called uh, Secular Age. He, as I understand it, is a very respected philosopher And he was writing and trying to help people, I think this book's a couple decades old, understand just the way culture is shifting. And really his his thesis question, if you will, was how did we in Western culture in a span of about 500 years move from this place where it was generally believed that you couldn't live a good life and not believe in God, you couldn't be fulfilled and happy and not believe in God, to a place where we fundamentally assume that you can because you're buffered. And the idea of buffered here is you're protected, you're insulated, there's nothing outside of yourself. And in a moment of ADD in my office, I thought of George Costanza and his puffy coat. So we're going to watch that clip. So the buffered self uh, is this, this general mindset that says all that's real is what you can see. Uh, you're accountable to no one outside of what those that you know and can see. And in some places would go so far as to say you're accountable only to yourself. And I suppose the question that we all have to answer is, is is that the life that we're going to live? Is that the belief system we carried? Is it possible uh, to to live otherwise? Or we could ask this question, like, how do we make sure we're living as though we are accountable? We can go to that next slide, Holly. Like, how do we move forward? And what does it look like to move forward under this idea of accountability? One of my favorite commentators on the Gospel of Matthew Uh, He caught my attention, and this is what kind of cracked this whole section open, and I began to think, like, I think Matthew 22 is a story, not a whole bunch of stories. He made this observation that that we all, and and to the extent that it's true, it's it's not new, we all want to follow a Jesus who put 
cultural hierarchy in its place, who tore down religious hierarchy and injustice, and then says to everyone else, you're loved and accepted as you are, just go live your life. And perhaps what this story and really this section of Matthew, what's going on here is this potentially scary reminder of like, no, there's more to it than that. Deeply loved, yes, and you have a job to do. So how does all this tie together? And I think that's part of the beauty of this section because then it moves into this conversation around paying taxes. Funny how some things don't ever change. Are we or are we not supposed to pay them? And these guys come to him and they ask, uh, do you pay taxes? Probably talking about an annual tribute tax reserved for men. But the other thing contextually going on here is many commentators think that what Matthew, the author, has done has lined up Jesus being asked a few of the most vexing, most difficult, most controversial questions of his day. Remember, Jesus is still standing in the temple. I think that contextually it's important to remind ourselves that. He's standing in the center of power. And what Matthew is about to do is first talk about taxes, then resurrection, then what's the most important commandment, and are you really thinking you're more important than King David? It would be like lining up a few questions of like, okay, so what do you believe about abortion and how about LBGQ plus and what, what party do you vote for and what other controversial thing? Oh, how about the war in Ukraine? It's more or less what's going on in this chapter. All tied, but how is it tied together? Well, what would this have to do with paying taxes to Caesar? Well, Jesus being asked the question says, well, anybody have a coin? Which is brilliant because they're, they're taking exception to the tax and yet they're carrying the money. And so they hand him the coin, and there's a trap, and he knows there's being a trap. In the original language, it makes it clear he knew that there was a trap, and what's the trap? Well, one of his best friends on the planet, some would argue his rabbi, a guy named John the Baptist, he was killed because of why? Like, what got him killed? He stood up to Herod. One of Herod's sons did some pretty heinous things in his own intimate relationships, John called bull, and it got him killed. So here's the dilemma. Like, does Jesus have the brass to stand up to Caesar? And if he does, then that's treason. But if he doesn't, then why are we so fond of him? He's weaker than John the Baptist. So Jesus kind of scales the wall, if you will, and says, well, who's, who's got a coin? And then when he gets the coin, he says, well, whose face is on it? And they say, well, that's Caesar's face. And then he says this, okay, why don't you give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? What is Caesar's? Money. And if you follow Matthew and Jesus closely, Jesus isn't all that caught up in stuff. Simplicity is a value of his. So if the money is Caesar's, what does it mean to give to God what is God's? Like what what is he referring to there? What is God's? Well, if this is a continued conversation about accountability, what what does accountability claim about God? Like, if you believe you're accountable, but what do you believe about God? Isn't it something like, ultimately, your life is his? He gave it to you? It belongs to him? You'll answer to him to how you used his life. Like we, we got my, my wife a new to her car a few weeks ago and I drove it to Billings for the 4th of July and at one point it finally I was able to articulate out loud, I said to Lincoln who was with me, I was like, I feel like I've borrowed my dad's car. Like if anything happens to this, I'm in so much trouble. <laughs> I hated the feeling. And that's not a reflection of her but of me. What does it mean to give to God what is God's? 
what if what Jesus is saying here is taxes? Piece of cake. You shouldn't, that shouldn't cause an issue for you. You want to know what's hard. Giving him yourself, giving him your life, giving him your breath, giving him everything, which leads to a conversation about resurrection, which again seems kind of like a, a list of Proverbs, but is it? There were people in Jesus' day who just flat didn't believe in resurrection, others who didn't, and so those who didn't brought him the most absurd example of what would kind of deconstruct resurrection. It's kind of like thinking like, I mean, how big does the planet have to be for all generations of humans to fit on one space? It's trying to fit what we know into what we don't. Well, in their case, it's like, okay, so wait a minute. If this woman is married to seven guys and none of them, she doesn't give any of them children, that would be their contextual lens, then whose wife is she in the resurrection? To which Jesus goes like, it's too small. Like, there's, there's no giving in marriage in the resurrection. It's different than that. C.S. Lewis, this great British thinker from the 20th century, his comment on this section was that it's like saying uh, to, to, to a kid that as an adult, sex is one of the best things you'll ever experience. And the kid, who has no concept, ideally, says, you must eat chocolate. Like, that's their paradigm. It's a similar thing going on here. But what would resurrection have to do with giving God your life and the fact that you're accountable? Well, it would have everything to do with it, wouldn't it? Because if there is no resurrection, then go on being a corrupt religious leader. If all that you have is this life, then what's the big deal? But if resurrection is real, if this is but a blip and that's the big part, then it's kind of like saving for retirement. Like, is setting aside money for retirement when you're 21 years old or 31 years old or 41 years old, is it wise? Well, that would depend, wouldn't it? Like, if you knew that you were going to live to 81, if you knew that you were going to make it to retirement, then it's, by definition, wise, morally and otherwise. But if you knew that you were going to die much earlier than that, then you could argue it's not. Why is resurrection a part of this but for the fact that, wait a minute, If it's all playing towards that end, then of course accountability is something we ought to keep in mind. But then that raises the question of like, okay, if it's all based on this kind of merit system, which it's not, there is grace, but but suppose that we are accountable, then what do we do? Which leads to this question. So what commandments do you want us to follow? To which Jesus goes, well, it's actually not that complicated. Love God and love people. We've taken that perhaps out of context. Like that famous statement, it fits within this bigger conversation about accountability. It's a statement that is both simple but incredibly difficult, isn't it? We even did a series several years ago called Simple But Demanding. The idea was, hey, go ahead and draw a circle. You might remember our friend James led us in this series and it was this hilarious series of videos that we did. And the idea was, go ahead, draw a circle. It's, it's, It's simple, but it's not easy. The fact that you might be accountable to God, accountable for what? Loving God, loving people, simple. And yet it'll take everything. Which then leads to this conversation about David and why is there all this conversation about are you David's son or not and what is going on here? And there's all kinds of cultural threads to pull on but really it seems to come down to this. If if you're claiming to be better than David, then you better be better than David. Because if you're not, it's like claiming to be better than George Washington or Mother Teresa. Like, you're, you're biting off a big chunk. To which Jesus confidently goes like, no, I'm, my kingdom is greater. My, my influence 
more important. What if, therefore, we're accountable to him? There's this famous violinist whose last name is Perlman. He was, uh, he's a contemporary violinist, and at the end of a concert, uh, he overheard someone saying of him, not directly to him, but within earshot, I would give my life to play the violin like you do. To which he said, next slide, I did. Now, is there a way to have this conversation that makes us really uptight, mean-spirited Christians? I think there is. But is there also a way to have this conversation that challenges the notion that like, following Jesus can be but a hobby? I think it's worth our consideration. Like, what does it look like uh, to live as though we play our lives for an audience of one, as the Apostle Paul says it? Some of you know on July 30th we did this gathering at 326. It was very much an experiment and a 1.0. It was a, a few videos from a, a, a something called the Q Ideas Conference. Uh, it's, it's a place and some people that we think can help us ourselves learn and then build out into community. Like how do we have these hard conversations? Uh, one of them was with a, a guy named William B. Allen. He's a professor at Michigan State and he was asked some questions f- from the space of politics and he turned a different corner with them. And I just, there's about a four minute video that, that I, I wanted us to take in, especially the way he ends that. So we're gonna give you a chance to reflect through communion if you've not participated with us in that before. There'll be bread over here and wine and juice over here and we just kind of loop through one row at a time. And just really are wanting to give you space, uh, to create space for you to begin to think about uh, to what extent, if any, is, is God this morning trying to nudge you around some things related to being accountable to him? Not in a shaming way, but in this inviting way, and in a way that says, can you imagine what would happen uh, if you and then we like, started from that place? But at the end of the day, I, I'll, I'll answer to God. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.